Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and Paul Hayward, the author and columnist. Two intriguing Champions League semi-finals this week. Can Chelsea impose themselves on Real Madrid? And will Manchester City be able to cope with PSG's pace? We'll attempt to provide answers later in the show. But before we indulge ourselves in actually talking about football, there's another debate to be had. You've guessed it, the legacy of the collapse of the Super League. It's a unique chance to reshape the game. But John, we've all been around the block. Will it be wasted? Let's hope it's not. I I do feel as if there's enough energy and momentum now and a realisation just how important fans are to the game that it feels like there should be a moment in time we have to pray that they'll they'll seize upon this moment and really across every body really whether that's the the FA whether that's the Premier League whether that's the clubs the players the owners that they wake up and really see the reality and really understand what's happened in the last week because i do feel as if that, that there might be this temptation certainly amongst the, the the big six, if you like, to just think, I think this this will blow over within a couple of weeks. Yes, there'll be a storm for a week. Yes, there'll be protests for maybe a fortnight. But it was really interesting. I was at the Carabao Cup final yesterday and spoke to a few fans before the game and a couple of Tottenham fans were saying, well, actually, we don't hold it too much against our ownership. Look what they've delivered stadium-wise. There was some anger about Daniel Levy, I think, about the running of the club generally, and maybe that's a point in time. Man City fans, one was in complete denial that the club had even signed up for the Super League. I mean, it was it was amusing, really. So I think there will be a temptation from those clubs to say, actually, let's move on, and maybe sort of American owners won't, won't be on the ground enough to see it. But I just think that basically there has to be this movement for change. And there has to be within other football. The 14 clubs, I'm sure, won't let the big six forget about it. But I think most importantly, it's the fans. It was fantastic to have fans back at Wembley yesterday. 7,771 of them. Counted them all up for attendance watch, obviously, for my uh, <laughs> running theme. Because I love having fans so much. It's like a different ball game for me. And I just think, if anything, in the last week, it's just been a wonderful movement amongst the fans to kind of show that football truly is. And I know it's a bit cliched about acne, but honestly, football is nothing without fans, is it? Yeah, I suppose, Paul, 
it all boils down to what type of club and what type of game do the fans want. You know, there are already suggestions that the plotters should essentially buy off their fans with big signings in the summer, you know, an extension of the bread and circuses. Yeah, the first sign that they hope it will all blow over, I thought, was Jurgen Klopp saying everybody needs to calm down. Now, Klopp behaved very honourably during the whole, you know, crisis uh, last weekend. But I think I think the fact that he expected people just to forget about it as if it was some minor skirmish tells you that the, those six clubs in England will will want to just forget it ever happened as quickly as possible and get back to the status quo. But the status quo is is changed forever. The problem I've got, Mike, is that the, the ownership structure, the way the business model of the Premier League works, is so entrenched that if you wanted to roll back the power of these owners, which I think most of us would like to do, as I keep saying in the, in the words of the old phrase, you wouldn't start from here. Because mm. how do you force them to do things that are against their business interests? And while you know, I've been enjoying the kind of upsurge of, of popular feeling about the, the, the direction football is going in and this desire to to make it more accountable and fairer and less um, polarised, you still run into the problem of these of these nation states, Russian oligarchs, American speculators, and it's very difficult to see how you turn the clock back on that. Yeah, I suppose when we look at it, how should the, the six English clubs atone for you know, what was a pretty egregious betrayal. What punishment, John, do you think would be appropriate? And if so, is there any appetite for it? Yeah, look, I do think there's an appetite for it, yeah. I feel quite strongly that basically the... And this is really difficult because how will clubs be affected or how will clubs be punished and how will they feel the effects if you don't impose something like a points deduction or a ban from the Champions League, or even a ban from the transfer market. I think you have to do something really quite radical. But then the the, the kickback from that is that you're punishing the fans. I, d- I do worry about that, because it's the fans that have led the, 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 the movement. And as angry as they feel, and, and it's like they've joined up with other fans... I, I'm really torn on that one. I think it's a, such, a big, such a big issue that I'm slightly wary of about punishing those fans because I think demoting them by points deduction w- would would really hurt. I think a, maybe a one-year Champions League ban, but then, the cha- mm. <laughs> frankly, the Champions League then, then loses out in, in a way because you just want the best teams. I mean, we're really torn o- over it, but I do think yeah. that the... You know, because, because you can argue, John, can't you? And, you know, I've seen it and I agree with it that, OK, what's the intrinsic difference between relegating Wigan... Mm. By, by taking 12 points from them mm. and inconveniencing, because you know, these clubs won't get relegated, inconveniencing those top six clubs by making a very strong gesture, but a gesture on, nonetheless. Yeah, listen, the, the, if you look at Man- Manchester City, when they were banned by UEFA, or, albeit they appealed, obviously, and, and won the appeal by UEFA uh, by being kicked out of the Champions League... That really hurt them in terms of stature, in terms of the way it, it, it was dished out. And that, that was a devastating blow. And that, I think, proved just how much even a one-year ban would, would devastate a club, frankly. But I go back to that fact. It is about the fans. And I just think that the, the fans weren't responsible for this. And, and to a degree, the players, the players rose up and you're punishing the players. 
you know, can you punish the the owner, the mega rich owners with with heavy substantial fines? I guess you, I guess you can, you can do that, but it's 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 a very difficult call. I I'm not completely convinced. I mean, there was a story the other day about sort of kind of the fourteen other clubs want the executives, chief executives, and chairman kicked off of the relevant boards and and, and so on. I'm not sure that all fourteen clubs go along with that. I'm not sure how real that is and how much reality is. It's something, certainly something that the Premier League can't do. They haven't got the power to do. But I think I think the, the, the biggest thing, I do think there should be some sort of financial punishment that would affect the owners. And I do think that it would hurt them. A really big, huge fine, which frankly should go to grassroots football. You know. Well, isn't that, isn't that the point? And Paul, you know, we had, when we, we started, we talked about an opportunity to reset. If, let's say you find those six teams or clubs, you know, this might sound an absurd amount of money, but they'll get this sort of money by playing in the Champions League, say 100 million each. So you've got 600 million to play with, to actually push down the pyramid, to support lower league clubs who've been struggling for their lives during the pandemic, and to have some form of, of pop for grassroots football, which which is which is withered. Maybe we can make a positive out of a really insulting negative. Yeah, the problem with saying that we can't do anything that's going to hurt the fans is that it gives these owners a, a shield to hide behind. They can do whatever yeah. they like, and they can just say, "Well, they won't punish us because because it will hurt the fans." You know, it gives them an excuse in advance. So it was a really serious betrayal, and there has to be a, a punishment for it. And I think a fine, a really substantial fine would be probably the best outcome. I just wonder whether there's a statute anywhere in the Premier League's rule book that would enable them to impose such a fine without the club owners then saying, well, there's no, there's no legal basis for this. You're, you know, you're inflicting an arbitrary punishment on us and we're not going to pay. So the, so the, the reason for, for imposing that fine would have to be really clear. I mean, I, I think... The main challenge is to make sure this can never happen again. And the way you do that, of course, is by by changing the constitution of the Premier League so so that the other 14 clubs can't be in constant threat of these breakaways and these plots and um, ploys. I mean, this is the second time we've seen this, of course. We've been, we went through the Project Big Picture saga before we even got to the Super League. So we're in a situation now where there are six clubs in the Premier League who are doing pretty much what they like in a very subversive way. And the, and the rest of English football has to stop them doing that and with, the, with the help of the government and the FA and all the governing bodies. So it's simply not possible anymore for rich and powerful owners to behave in this way. But, Paul, we've seen how politicians are just natural opportunists when it comes to the, something as, as popular and populist as football, haven't we? Do you actually have any faith in this so-called fan-led review that the government are, are hyping up at the moment? No, I think Tracy Crouch is a, is a very kind of sincere politician, but I have zero faith in this government from a sincerity and conviction point of view. I mean, we, you know, we, we're still waiting to find out what exactly was said between Ed Woodward and, um, and Number 10 when he visited recently, just prior to the Super League being announced, you know, what was going on there. Why did Boris Johnson take text messages from the ruler of Saudi Arabia and appear to jump into action when the 
when Salman objected to the Newcastle takeover being blocked. You know, anybody who looked at all that would say, you wouldn't rely on this government to protect you from bad owners. So, but the, you could still have, well, I'm, I was going to say this later in the programme, but what you need is an independent regulator. I wouldn't rely on government, but I, I, I do think that, you know, Gary Neville and David Bernstein are correct when they say football is not possible of governing itself. It's an extreme free market, laissez-faire model, anything goes. And, and, the, and the clubs are too powerful for the governing bodies to control. Therefore, it needs an independent regulator with much tighter rules about what owners can and can't do. Because mm. also, John, it was an existential challenge to UEFA mm. as well. And they essentially smuggled the Swiss model, the, the engorged Champions League, through when everyone was diverted by the, the Super League. Seferin is saying, yes, you know, we will learn lessons, we will revisit this. Again, I'll ask the same question about UEFA and the football authorities. Do we feel that they can act in the common good, for the common good, rather than in their own narrow self-interest? So in other words, will they do something radical about that Champions League format? No, look, I feel really strongly about this. I, I, I think the UEFA have really got away with one here in that basically there's a reason why beyond pure greed, and I guess at the heart of it and the main argument is pure greed, there's a reason why those clubs felt they needed to break away. And, and it's beyond not being relegated, always having their place secured. It's because they're, they're angry at UEFA. And from their perspective, the biggest failing of the, of the big six and, and, the, and the dirty dozen, call it what you like, is that they never landed their message publicly. It was There was a bit of off the record, there was chats, and please, by no means am I defending that breakaway, I'm not. But basically, the, the flip side to this argument is that it's UEFA who are being incredibly greedy. Why on earth are UEFA beyond the regulators of the Champions League? And they are. They are the commercial partners. They really shouldn't, they really shouldn't be. They are, they are banking a hell of a lot of money. It's a hugely successful, mega-rich body, and it's, it's just too much. They don't, they don't consult the clubs on the global calendar. They don't consult the clubs on FFP. They don't call, consult the clubs full stop. But year in, year out, they expect the clubs to take the risk, provide the players and set everything down, and then basically bank all the cash and all the, all the success and all the plaudits that goes with their incredibly successful Champions League and amidst a global pandemic where clubs have lost hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds I can understand some frustration there I really can and I just think that this model now that's gone through is a hybrid effectively and it's their choice it's their breakaway Super League because it will make them richer it will have more games it will put more focus on the players and listen I like the model by the way I actually think that basically the Champions League is fabulous and we love watching it. And I, the one thing, the one area is that basically those dead group games, those back-to-back -back group games where you might have match day five and it's a complete dead rubber because one team has dominated the group. What on earth then? You know, what's the point? You have to find a better solution. And the Swiss model of, of, of a kind of a, a round robin where you don't play the same team twice, you try and make each game meaningful... There's something to be said for that. I like the format. I just don't like the way it's it's set out. And if Jurgen Klopp had more, I guess, a place on, on moral high ground, which was deprived of him by his owners, I guess, 
then I think what he said on Friday about basically the, the, the schedule is all wrong, the fixtures it's putting too much on and basically it's UEFA being greedy, then I think that would have had a, a bigger projection, frankly. But, you know, people have stopped sympathising with Liverpool, haven't they, for obvious reasons. But there's a real issue here. And I just think that UEFA, let's hope that they look at themselves too because they're, they're partly to blame in this. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think there's probably a, a common conception, Paul, that this one, there are just far too many games. Now, you know, the very sort of glib response to that is, well, OK, if we want to have less games, it means that you've got to pay your players less. You've got to pay your head coach less. That's never going to happen, is it? No, Manchester City are the first to raise the player welfare issue. And I, I think it's a it's a valid point. Guardiola's upset about the fact that teams will now play a minimum of 10 games in the group stage. There'll be more pressure as a result of this on the League Cup and FA Cup and all the rest of it. This will filter back down through the system. And as, as, as John said, it, it is a hybrid format in the sense that, you know, Liverpool, say Liverpool finish fifth this season at the moment under this new system, this Swiss model, Liverpool could walk into the Champions League after finishing fifth. So it reserves two places for super club teams who've slightly underperformed. So ironically, UEFA are built into, the, um, into this Swiss model, the kind of, you know, unfairness that they're screaming about in the Super League. It's just that they've only put two places in their new model, whereas the, the Super League wanted, wanted 20. There's still a feeling of, a little feeling of closed shop about it. And of course, what we don't know now is whether the Dirty Dozen will now go, will regroup and go after UEFA and say, look, I know we agreed to this Swiss model, but actually it doesn't go far enough and if you're going to, and if we're not going to try this again, you're going to have to make far more concessions to us and and move to, further towards a closed shop. And I also also agree with with John that this there is long standing resentments against UEFA for them to act as both a governing body, a regulator, and a, and a commercial entity is just plain wrong. It's a, it's a problem in world sport where governing bodies behave as businesses, as corporations, that the two roles are incompatible. So if I could give, if I understood to, to, a, to, to a 5% degree the arguments of the big clubs, it would be that UEFA has far exceeded its brief and, 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 and shouldn't be controlling the commercial revenue of the Champions League in the way that it is. Yeah, and you've got FIFA in the background doing exactly the same thing, haven't you? Yes, at the World, um, the World Cup level, yeah. Yeah, I suppose let's look at it broadly. We pointed out the failings. I suppose it's time for us to sort of put up and or shut up about, you know, what's our vision for the future? What needs to change? Why and how? John, I'll kick this off, if you could, please. The 51% fan model, mm. as in Germany, is that viable over here? Look, I, I, you could easily say yes, and it would be a wonderful thing to see because I think the German clubs have merged with this with so much credit. But the... <laughs> I just find it difficult to envisage, nigh on impossible, really, because as much as we'd like to see it, and the fans have spoken in the last week, and what an important voice they've got, I, I'm not sure about 51%. It just it would be so so difficult, I think, ultimately, to kind of impose that upon a club, which is run as a commercial business, as it stands. I, I think that basically every club should be made to have greater interaction, greater responsibility, greater, I, I don't know, call a, 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 to the fans, really, better relationships with them 
How are you going to do that? Can you post a sort of a fan on the board? Does a fan have a sort of a voice at board level? I think it's very, very difficult to see. I was thinking about this on sort of a, for a couple of clubs. I mean, how could you, how could you pose that? Could you get a maybe a a, a really respected former player, for example, to kind of almost be the conduit between a group of fans, group of fan spokespeople, really taking their views to the board and having a place on the board. Even if you've not then ultimately got a fan on the board, of course we'd all love to see the fans on the board. But how practical is that? Is that really? I, I think it's very difficult when you're talking about billionaire businessmen buying football clubs at a huge expense and then basically being told that they must do this. I think it's it, it's very difficult to impose. We'd love to see it, obviously, but I think in real practical terms, I actually think that something like that like a, a, a spokesman, a former player, could be the conduit between the fans and the board as long as they felt as if they had their their voice respected. You'd like to think that they would be respected enough to make sure that being tuning in with the fans enough that, that basically some sort of Super League would never happen again. But who knows? But I th- it's a very difficult one to, to overcome, I think. Mm. Mm. What would you like to see happen, Paul? Well, it's worth remembering, of course, that the, the Premier League wanted this model. It wanted the Glazers to be able to use a leverage buyout to get hold of Manchester United. It wanted nation states to be able to buy clubs. It wanted American speculators to, be, to, to move into the market so that they could create the most globally dominant league, the, the, the world's favourite form of entertainment, as they like to call it. So this is, this, this is by design, this, this outcome that we're seeing with these, with these top six clubs. This is exactly how the Premier League is built. It reflects its whole philosophy and ideology. So then, of course, you ask yourself, how do you, how do you reverse that? I, I, I like the idea of, of fan involvement, but the real decisions here are made in Abu Dhabi and, and, and Moscow and Boston and Florida. The idea of you know, a, a token fan on the board being able to stand up to these huge geopolitical decisions is a bit optimistic. So I think it, it comes down in the end to, um, again, to regulation. So you need an independent regulator. You need a fit and proper person test that doesn't just wave people through the door in a kind of tokenistic way. You need a ban on leverage buyouts. I think, I think the leverage buyout of Man United has been disastrous for the club. You need a ban on nation states buying clubs because countries just shouldn't own football clubs. That, that's, a, that's a route to disaster. And you need these tighter rules to prevent subversion from within breakaways and threats and, and power games. You need, you need control, really. But I don't think, you know, I, I, this, this 50, 50 plus one model that people talk about, I can't imagine anyone going to Sheikh Mansour or Roman Abramovich and saying you 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 have to sell half your club or you have to give half your club to fans because it would just become mired in legal complexity. But but there are ways you can change it from the future. There's not a lot you can do about the situation we have now, but you can definitely make sure that the the, the direction of travel is is, is different from now on. Mm. I I can see that model working lower down the pyramid, League One, League Two, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, where where the clubs anyway, you know, by their size and their nature, tend to be closer to the communities that they represent. I tell you what, let's be really radical, John. Let's talk about football, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> How welcome a distraction do you think 
the Champions League semi-finals will be this week. Oh, just massive. I mean, I, I can't. I mean, they are absolutely cracking ties, but you still feel, as a journalist, you still think. I was thinking about this yesterday. God, what's my match report? You know, is it is it kind of these two? Is it these two sort of shamed into remembering actually the Carabao Cup actually means something? Because honestly, that that would have been by the wayside. And how do you write this? Well, I mean, all these three of the four clubs were inextricably linked to the European Super League. So you kind of come back thinking, oh, it seems a bit hollow, basically, in a way. But then you focus back on the football and we, and we should do that. And we have to move on at some point, I guess. And that basically they are absolutely fabulous ties. I mean, Real Madrid, Chelsea... I mean, we like to think that, don't we, that basic Real Madrid probably isn't as good as as a team as it has been in recent seasons. And you look at the lineup; it hasn't got so many stars. It's not so star-studded. But here we go again. Yeah, I mean, they're in the Champions League semi-final. It's incredibly tight, La Liga. They could easily win a double, and we and we'd have to say, well, they're not bad after all, to to be honest. And then Chelsea are just doing fantastic under Tuchel. And then the other tie, I just think is is wonderful. I mean, I do. I, I hold up my hands here and now and say I absolutely love Maurizio Pochettino. I just think he's fantastic. What a character! What a guy! Love his style. Love his style of football. Love his style of management. And that up against Pep Guardiola, they've got history. They've kissed and made up before Pochettino left English football, and there's huge respect there. But what a tie that is, bearing in mind that PSG have had some absolute monsters so far against Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Now they've got another one ahead of them against Man City. This week, I think, is monumental in the Champions League. Brilliant ties. I'm intrigued by Tuchel, Paul. It seems that we don't know that much more about him now than we did when he arrived. He's obviously produced a very economical, organised team and... That, at the moment, has been enough to pilot them towards a probable top four place and and the last four in the Champions League. What do you make of him? Well, I've been impressed with him because he seems to be able to think on a lot of levels. Uh, the, to me, the, well, there were two problems with taking the Chelsea job. One was the expectation of the owner and the fact that they just sacked Frank Lampard. And the second was just how many players he's got, how many options he has, how many, how many players could justifiably claim a spot in that starting eleven, And he's been able to, to juggle all that and manage all that really cleverly. He's found a, he's found a way of playing. He's, he's, he seems to have, you know, he's, he's put the heat on the underperforming players, so they've had to respond. And the results have been consistently good, pretty much, apart from that one bad defeat. And he, he, he strikes me as a, a very clever guy. You often see this... With Chelsea managers, though, you get this you get this period, don't you, at the start where everything looks looks dandy, and you think at last Chelsea have found the right guy, you know, and then and six months later, bang, he's gone, you know. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have any long term thoughts about him, but at the, at the at the moment, I think he's doing an incredibly good job in in difficult circumstances, and he's grading and sifting these players to find his best eleven, and he's got them busy and working and positive. So you know they go into this Real Madrid game, I think, in pretty good nick. Mm. What have you made, John, of, of Timo Werner? He, he is an enigma, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say I'm really surprised at just how badly he struggled at times because I'd seen a lot of him and I just thought, 
Wow. I didn't ever see him, actually, as the focal point of an attack. I, I know he's played there before, obviously, for Leipzig and for Germany, but he's just basically, I always thought he would be fantastic for Chelsea because he could play there on occasion. But the, the, the best, I thought, for Timo Werner was to play on the left of a front three. He's got pace, he, he, he's very direct, and he just sort of kind of cuts in. And I just think that he still hasn't found a, a real settled home at Chelsea. And Chelsea, let's be clear, haven't really found a defined best 11, let alone sort of really sort of settled formation. And I think he's sort of kind of almost, you know, finding out about players. I think he's got Jorginho, random example, playing really, really well, dictating and running games. And I think he's playing his best football since he's been at at Chelsea, frankly. But there's a lot of mix and match. And I think Werner comes into that category. So I don't think he's ever settled, but... You know, he's just missing so many chances. He missed an absolute sitter again on Saturday. It was justified belief. And I just, mm. this is a player that's massively struggling for confidence. And if I think if he wasn't such an established international for such a big country and, and hadn't come with such a big price tag, I think we'd be looking at taking him out rather than Tammy Abraham, who I just feel very sorry for because I just don't think that Werner's sort of settled and, and maybe that's maybe it's something that he won't ever settle into the Chelsea pattern but I'd like to think so because there's such a talented player there that we've seen in the past but it just hasn't I don't think Chelsea have by any means found their best way of playing and I think their best Werner's best hope of success is being on the left coming inside of a front three and I just think at the moment he's become a real enigma, a bit of a mystery, really. Such a frustrating player at the moment. Hmm. I don't think he's um, a Maratta, is he, or a, a Torres of, of, of old. But, uh, yeah, you're right. There is a, a jigsaw stu- puzzle still to be completed. What about Madrid, Paul? La Liga title big has, has faltered a bit. Two goalless draws in the last three games. Interestingly, Zidane will have Tony Cruz back this week. And also, someone who's been forgotten in all this, Eden Hazard. You know, might well start from the bench, probably. What do you make of them? Is it, is this? Does it have the feel of Zidane's last hurrah in Madrid to you? It does, but the way they disposed of, of Liverpool, I thought, was quite striking. I know Liverpool have their problems, but Real Madrid's calling card to me is, apart from their pedigree and their experience and their kind of knockout know-how, is that midfield that Casemiro, Modric, and Cruz, as who, as you said, Mike, looks like he's going to be fit? They, they, that's a very domineering midfield. They dominated Liverpool really, and 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 determined the outcome of both those games. So, if they do that to Chelsea, then Chelsea are going to have a problem. They're going to have Chelsea are going to have to try and find a way around that the control that Real Madrid are able to exert in those positions. So they're going to have to go fast and wide. They're going to have to have to try and find a formula that bypasses that 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 kind of domination there. And, and yeah, I, that Real Madrid aren't aren't the, the the superstar team of old. But as long as they've got that 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 engine in the centre of the park, those three supremely good players, that they will present a, a, the type of test that, that Chelsea don't really face very often in, in the Premier League. And it, but if they can find a way around that, they've, they've got a chance. Mm. What about? City, John, you know, you obviously saw them at Wembley yesterday. Raheem Sterling, is he struggling for form or 
does he deserve to be doubted in the way that some are doubting him? Well, I, just, I think he's been, you know, focused on so much because we've, we've become so used to him playing so well, and basically at the moment he has been struggling. I think I thought it was his best game for a long time in the final. I think he looked dangerous again, albeit he didn't score, and maybe he's lacking the confidence to actually just get off the shot early, rather than turn back inside again to try and square it to a teammate. And I just think he is lacking that confidence at the moment. It is it is an issue. And I, I can't help but get away from feeling that probably Guardiola thought, do you know what, I'm going to rest and rotate a little bit and basically put a few players in that might not start on Wednesday. And does Sterling fit into that category? Guardiola was incredibly effusive in his praise after the game about Sterling. And, and Sterling at his best, I think, Definitely, you know, he's a nailed-on starter for City. But he hasn't been that this season. And it's been so noticeable in the last couple of months. He just needs to get, get back there. I do find it absolutely baffling that, that basically City haven't got a number nine that Guardiola seems to completely be able to rely on. Gabriel Jesus is, is you know, inconsistent, wastes a lot of chances. Aguero, not the player that he was. I mean, surely where this summer comes that they will sign a brilliant centre-forward, whoever that might be. And that raises even further questions and doubts for Sterling. He will have two years left on his contract this summer. So it's, it's a really big couple of months ahead for Sterling. Because if he wants to you know, be the player that he can be and should be, then he really got to step up to the plate. But it, it is a baffling one at the moment. I think people are rightly raising questions because we've become so used to this player getting 25 goals, countless assists a season. He's so His stats are fantastic in the last few seasons, but his performances this season just haven't been up to his usual standards for whatever reason. I was thinking yesterday, Mike, that um, when, when, when he's off a bit, Raheem Sterling, his, his first touch is often not quite there. Takes too many touches around the box, as, as John said. He turns back inside, looks for a teammate, and his and his finishing isn't decisive. I mean, he worked his socks off yesterday for Manchester City, and you can see him trying to reassure the manager that he's, you know, he he should be playing in all these big games. But but yeah, when when his when his form dips like that, he's, it's just that close control and the and the confidence on the ball, the, the the final moment, the final pass, the final you know the finishing that just goes off, and you, and you can see it very clearly in his game and uh, again watching it yesterday I was thinking big decision for Guardiola over the summer does he carry on with this strikerless formation this strikerless system all the false nines running around everywhere or does he say okay Aguero's going I don't really trust or rate Jesus I'm going to go out and buy a world-class finisher it's a, it's a big decision for Manchester City to decide how they're going to play next season with or without a striker yeah we're concentrating on on you know, the offensive side of, of the argument. What about the defensive side, Paul? Are they or will they be vulnerable to the pace of PSG? You know, I, I was watching that Mbappe goal against Mets on Saturday when it was a simple ball over the top by Ander Herrera. And the pace was just spellbinding. I can see that causing some problems, can you? Yeah, this is a what a matchup this is, PSG against um against Man City because, first of all, PSG have two killers, don't they, in Neymar and Mbappe. They don't usually face quality like that in the Premier League. They can get away with keeping the ball and taking their time and being patient and, and picking teams apart. But against PSG, they're going to face an opponent 
with two kind of lethal weapons, aren't they? Neymar, not so much for his pace, but for his creativity. And Mbappe, as you say, Mike, a, tea, a, a player that can just, can just go past your shoulder, run straight through you and finish you. And City's defending has been much better this season, of course, because they found a reliable centre-back pairing. They're, they're, they're stronger at the back than they were last season, that's for sure. I suppose it's a question of how they approach the game, whether they allow the full-backs to get forward or whether how much they invest in, in stopping Mbappe. But it will certainly put a thought in their minds. Mm. How do you think it will pan out, John? <sighs> I, I, I think Paul's right there. I think the basic, I think PSG's offensive threat is... is is a re- such an issue for City in that basically Ruben Diaz is I think you've got to make him a case for him as player of the year this season he's just been sensational and the way <laughs> I loved his tackle on Harry Kane yesterday although he got penalised <laughs> for it and I guess you know the letter I don't know modern football dictates that you can't really tackle like that from behind so I can actually see what the referee's done there I'm sounding like Peter Walton now but it's basically I think the um, please don't <laughs> oh, I think it's great by the way brilliant entertainment I, I just think he's he's made such a difference he's given them such a surety and then basically also by the way John Stones will surely play won't he because if he's banned domestically didn't then play for what turned out to be a gruelling thing I just think that Stones and Diaz will be will play against PSG and it's the ultimate test it's about Neymar it's about it's about Mbappe isn't it Mbappe there's a bit of a fitness issue I'm sure that's a bluff you know so he'll play surely and I saw him play at the Etihad for Monaco and he was he's just the best and the closest thing that I've seen since Thierry Henry in terms of pace and in terms of the, the, the quick on the break and he's got the power to I mean, people talk about it. It always makes me laugh as if sort of people looking for Mbappe to establish himself on the world stage and be the world superstar. He's already won the World Cup at 19. <laughs> he's just so good. He is so good. And I just think he's 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 just fabulous. And I look forward to, to watching him so much in the Champions League because he's just my absolute dream player. I think he's he's wonderful. And look, I have to say, I think PSG are coming into form really, where they sort of maybe sort of struggled a little bit, you know, albeit they didn't show it too much against Bayern in, in the previous weeks. And Man City are not at the peak of their game. And I, I do actually fancy over the course of two legs, I think PSG might might win through. It is a multifaceted tie, isn't it, Paul? You know, it is the, the Gulf derby, if you like. <laughs> PSG, PSG, like Manchester City... They probably need to win the Champions League to meet the strategic objectives of their owners, both in in sporting, in geopolitical, and and commercial context, don't they? Yeah, this was the this was the pinnacle for them. This was the this was the the main point of the business plan, wasn't it? To be European champions and to be the dominant team in world club world football, which which they would be if they were to win it. And of course. And all the time they don't win it, they invite the charge that, oh, this is just a hollow enterprise. They're playing in a weak league. They, they, they just buy all the good players. But, they, you know, when it comes to the, um, the uh, Champions League, when the going gets tough, they go fishing kind of thing. But the most promising, um, one the, the most promising aspect for me about them at the moment is that, is that Pochettino has instilled into them this uh, fighting spirit. He's completely changed the body language of the team. I mean, they fought like crazy against Bayern Munich in those two legs. And... Those were the types of games in the past where you would have expected PSG to bail out, really, because 
you know, they didn't have that sort of tenacity. They weren't a hardened league team from playing in France every week. Too many superstars playing as individuals. Pochettino's imprint is on that team already. And, and if they fight, you know, in this round, in the semi-final, the way they did against Bayern Munich, then you could quite imagine them in the final. And how bizarre to think that they would be, um, they're the only one of the four semi-finalists who didn't conspire in the Super League. So as John said earlier, they PSG could end up as the neutral's choice, the people's champions. You, we've never expected that, would you? <laughs> no, you don't really <laughs> see them as being on the side of the angels, do you? Not really. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, John, did you have any sort of what-if moments at Wembley, i.e. looking at that Spurs team, looking at the Spurs bench, and you know, I think Ryan Mason's been a you know, the proverbial breath of fresh air, hasn't he? But thinking to yourself... What if? What if Pochettino was still in charge of this team? Where does that defeat leave Spurs? <laughs> Only about twenty times in the first half, Mike. I mean, I, just, I, I still <laughs> find it utterly, utterly bizarre that basically at the first sign of trouble, Spurs got rid of the the best thing to happen to them for a couple of decades. I mean, I just utterly, utterly bizarre that the first sign, of, and it really was. We are talk. We are talking about six months after they reached. Well, not even that. You know, after they reached the Champions League final, they're showing Pochettino the door. People want to question Daniel Levy about the appointment of Jose Mourinho or kind of sacking Mourinho before just you know less than a week before the the Carabao Cup final. It all comes back to the ridiculous decision to to sack Pochettino. I mean, maybe maybe it's good for Pochettino. Maybe the the, the changes will will be good for him. I just find it utterly bizarre. I do I do really like Pochettino so much because of his energy and and I just think where on earth do Spurs go from here now? I mean, they haven't won a trophy since 2008 and that was the League Cup. Who's going to be their next manager? It doesn't feel as if they've got an absolute set plan, which I have to say is a worry because surely you'd have a real philosophy and a, and a way in mind. To put Ryan Mason up against Pep Guardiola I mean, we all love a fairy tale and, and, and Ryan Mason's a really popular guy and he speaks really well, but it's 29 and sort of, I think one of the TV companies yesterday did a sort of kind of a, a, a fact box, didn't they, about how many trophies Guardiola has, has won. I think that they had it at 24, so obviously not including the Community Shield, shame on them. Um, and, um, and then basically, you know, Ryan Mason, zero, games played, two, one, one, you know, because he's midway through his second game up against Guardiola. Are you sure? I mean, it's just so, it's so ridiculous. It's not true. And I just think it's, you know, Spurs, as a result, looked disjointed, totally lacking ambition, didn't know quite what to do, how to play. It was one of their worst performances of the season. And you just think, well, Jose Mourinho wouldn't have done worse than that. I'm sorry, he wouldn't. I mean, it's just, it's, I just found it utterly, utterly bizarre. Daniel Levy has made some bad choices. He's done some really good things in the last few seasons, but he's made some spectacularly bad football choices in the last couple of seasons. And so the, the European Super League is right up there. So basically, I do think, I think that basically fans have every right to be saying, have we got the right man at the top of the club? And I'm not sure that they have anymore. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, that, whether the anger of fans is either linked... So let's take Arsenal as an example, Paul. 
whether the their anger, the fans' are anger, obviously it's it's linked to Cronky and the mistrust of him, but also is it linked to the persistence of their decline? They got the Europa League semi final against Villarreal on Thursday. That's a really dangerous point of comparison for Mikel Arteta, isn't it? Because of the reunion with Unai Emery. Yeah, although I don't think whatever happens in that game, I don't think Arsenal fans will pine for Unai Emery. I think most of them understand that Arteta has quite a lot going for him and, and is a you know a, a promising manager in many respects. But you're right, Mike. It's, it's cumulative with with Arsenal fans. This this Super League delusion was 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 bound to strike a match with on the petrol of everything Arsenal fans have been feeling for such a long time now. They've seen they've seen a cumulative decline in the team. Bad buys, a downgrading of the quality of the first team squad, a kind of directionless feel about the place. They've got what feels like an absentee American ownership, although, you know, the Cronkies will say they're more involved than people realise. But it's a club adrift and very sadly so because they are an absolute bulwark in, in English football. You 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 look at Arsenal as one of the very symbols of the English game and when they're allowed to drift uh, in the way that they have been by by owners who appear to think of the club as just a nice kind of investment egg that they you know that they sit on and and don't have to do very much with. I know they've been more active in in, in the last couple of seasons and trying to sort the structure out, but it hasn't changed the league position, you know, because they're they're down in ninth. And yes, I can understand why with Arsenal fans it, it really did it really did ignite the indignation that's been building and was building at the end of the. Um, the Wenger era, as we know. Mm. It's interesting, John, actually, you know, from what you said earlier on, Matt Law is reporting this morning that Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp and Patrick Vieira have joined Daniel Ek, the chief exec of Spotify, in his bid to buy Arsenal. Do you see anything coming of that? No. <laughs> No chance. <laughs> Absolutely no. Sorry. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm not the biggest fan of Spotify. I do have Spotify, but basically, I, um, I see it almost as a necessary evil, really, to kind of catch up with podcasts and sort of music. But I absolutely hate the way that Spotify is absolutely destroying the music industry. So, you know, from, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> not, not, I wouldn't be first and foremost the biggest fan of the, of the principle of that anyway. But look, I. Stan Kroenke is just not he's not going to sell. It's just absolutely not going to sell. Josh Kroenke, in fairness to him, did address the fans last week and made it absolutely clear he's the only American owner to to do that, to actually hold a fans for him. And I think he's determined to kind of establish closer links. Within that, he, he said we're not we're absolutely not selling. And that is absolutely the position, by the way. He's not just saying that for paying lip service. Listen, it would be lovely to to imagine a a body which was led by sort of great players and former players, and maybe that's a way forward. Maybe that's something that the the, the clubs can look to 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 involve as as a sort of a as a link between the fans and and the sort of the board using a great player. But no, I just don't I don't see it. I mean, we've had interest before in Arsenal from various parties, and it's just it's not come to anything. And I, I really don't think that, that this will either. If I'm if I'm brutally honest, no. Yeah, well, I suppose with Manchester United, they're at home to to Roma in in their first leg of the Europa League semi-final. None of us were surprised, were we? Steve Bates did a piece on Sunday 
reporting that the Glazers want four billion to sell up. Unpalatable, certainly unsurprising, definitely. Let's look at Manchester United as a football club for once, or a football team. That draw against Leeds yesterday almost screamed that there was a team there who really can't wait for this season to be over. Yeah, I'm a bit of a fan of Solskjaer's in the sense that you can measure progress in the team. It's partly because they've started making better decisions in the transfer market, but where they are in the table at the moment and, and the number of players they now have who you'd, you know, you'd be happy to have again next season and develop, I, th- I think he's made progress. He's obviously betrayed his inexperience and he's learning on the job, but given the, the circumstances of the club's ownership and you know, the legacy of the Mourinho years and the negativity around the club, I think he's done extraordinarily well to get them to second place in the table. And there are signs that they're going to be, that they're going to be better next season. And, you know, they've got a lot of young players who are developing fast, like, you know, Rashford and Greenwood and, and, and a lot of players who are, who are better now under Solskjaer than they were previously. Luke Shaw is obviously a classic example of that. Uh, as, for the, as for the ownership... The, the Glazers are the most aggressive, I think, of all the big six owners in the sense that they, they care the least about public opinion. And they're most focused, I think, on, on the eventual selling price. They were always going to sell the club, in my view, once they'd you know, extracted what they wanted to extract from it. So they've got to be at the stamp duty uh, holiday, of course. They haven't got much time to do that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know, I, I, they will be looking for an astronomical sum, having... having as I said, extracted quite a lot of money in, in, in fees and, and dividends and so on from the from Manchester United. And they're they're the club to watch really. I think if um if a major if a major kind of predator uh, in world football was looking for a Premier League club to buy, they'd probably be looking at Manchester United. But again, the asking price is going to be ridiculous. Because I think that that's the point, I think, in a way, isn't it, Paul? In that basically it's all well and good to talk about potential buyers and I'm sure you know fans would love to see sort of former players being involved but you've also got to remember that the clubs are really concerned about falling revenues and falling you know they've, they've taken huge hits during the pandemic and it does come back to the point that is there anyone out there that is going to kind of take on that financial responsibility and also be able to afford a club and to put their money on the line when when frankly the, the revenues are falling already and I think that that's the point isn't it I mean I was really intrigued and I'm really intrigued to hear what you say there Paul because presumably the Glazers have put this guy high figure on to, to basically and it's partly to sort of say well we're not going cheaply if we go at all but this is what someone's got to find and can anyone find it can anyone find that for Arsenal can they find it for Man United and it doesn't look as if for a moment sort of JW Henry will sell but basically I I I'm not sure anyone is out there that is going to be ambitious and bold enough to kind of stump up that sort of cash. Well, I think the whole um, the whole myth of the Super League breakaway was that there there is another gold mine out there that we haven't even got to yet. You know, we've only begun exploiting the the commercial financial potential of this club we own. You know, so and if we create this Super League, suddenly we'll all get three hundred million pounds a a year each from J.P. Morgan. So. If they can sell that idea to the next buyer and say to them, OK, you're actually getting it cheap because five years from now you'll be making three times as much money as you're making now, then they might find these buyers. But I think, I think we're all waking up to the fact that there isn't this infinite gold mine. There are limitations. 
and that um, the market might have expanded uh, as much as it's going to, certainly for now. Yeah. I'd just like to bring everything together, I could, chaps. It was after Wembley, John, yesterday, Kyle Walker shared a, a screenshot of the racist abuse that he re received on social media after the, the cup final. He asked very pertinently, when is this going to stop? Now, we've got the three-day social media boycott by the football industry for later in the week, Friday. Is that enough? No, no. I mean, I do think it will make it. I think it will make an impression because this is a big weekend for football. I mean, Man City could, Man City could win the title. Other clubs have sort of kind of got things at stake. It's a big statement from the football bodies because we're talking about football clubs. We're talking then about sort of dozens and dozens of players joining this action. The Premier League themselves definitely make an impression for sure, but. Will it stop the abusers? No, I don't think it will. I think it might even sort of encourage more. I think my my reading of this is that basically it's to put pressure on the social media companies. That That is the, the driver of this. Not necessarily to out completely end the, the abusers, if you like. Or, or that's clearly the, the, the wish. But I think that basically the, 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 this particular campaign, this three day three day campaign, is aimed, you know, really at the social media companies to say, do something about it, act quicker, verify accounts, do this really, really in the strongest possible terms. And I have to say, I, I sort of chased a couple of social media companies yesterday for comment and reaction to uh, to this. <laughs> Got absolutely nowhere, by the way. But I did get one, get something back this morning, first thing, and they're not backing down over, over verification, for example. Until the verification happens and, the, and people are, are accountable, I don't think that basically things will change. I think this is a brilliant idea and a fantastic thing. Let's hope all the sponsors and other sports join in. That's the hope and that's the wish, and I think they will, and it will make an impression. But will it, will it solve the issue? No, I don't think so. No, I suppose, for for what it's worth, which is very, very little in the great scheme of things, I, I think it's incumbent on us as well as, as as the football media or sports media to actually probably join it as well. I'm certainly going to, for as I say, for what little that is worth. Are we beyond the stage of gestures now, Paul, with these social media companies? Yeah, that, that's the point, Mike, and that's why I'm going to support it as well. Because you know, I've I've um, made a lot of my living out of covering football, and I feel I owe it to the the game to support this action, which is which is direct action. That's that's the difference. This isn't a slogan or a T-shirt. It's direct action aimed at the publishers of the material, and that's why it's that's why it's it's worth doing. As journalists, we, we don't have to use social media. We do it because it helps us. We, we, we've still got our own channels. We can still get published without supporting Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the rest of it. So, so we, can, we can get involved in this without stopping doing our jobs. It doesn't stop us doing our jobs. It just keeps us off social media for a few days. And, it, and, it, and as I say, what it, 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 it strikes at the publishers of the material and it says to them, you shouldn't be allowing this. You should be stopping this. And, and I was impressed by the unity, the whole of the football industry coming together. 
and saying and acknowledging, as I said earlier, that that, that um, t-shirts and slogans just aren't enough. You have to you have to punish the people who are who are giving vent to these views. And it's a small period. It's a it's it's a start. It's not. It, it's probably not going to change that much. But it sends a an important message to all these social media companies that it's not okay for them just to keep shrugging and saying, you know, what can we do? Yeah, it's, it's probably too little, too late. But it it is a start, I suppose. Like so much that's associated with modern sport, money is an elemental factor in this social media companies will not be compelled to act until their profits are affected and they're politically inconvenienced. They must be forced to own this problem because the abuse is persistent, vicious and getting worse. What do you think? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Paul and John for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.